Lots of idle fingers snapped to my command A lovely pair of heels that kicked to beat the band Contemplating nature can be fascinating It's time for the Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And today we're here to discuss the first in Amazon's new team up with Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel in the in the show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So we are longtime Gilmore Girls fans. We did not get into Bunheads, but we really love Gilmore Girls and have been to a lot of the Gilmore Girls fan fests and a lot of their online chat rooms and could not wait to see what Amy Sherman Palladino had to say about another young woman's life and how she was going to depict this really interesting time in history in New York City. And it's really interesting mesh of like the old and the new. So what I mean by that is that you have all these really beautiful clothes, the colors. I wish these colors would come back like with a vengeance because I love this like peacock blue and this really deep saturated like magentas and greens and stuff. So beautiful. Everything visually was, I mean, Really, honestly, I don't know how you felt, but as a as a woman, I'm like, I love it all already because I'm I'm so entranced by the fashion and the colors and the way that the uniforms and everything are still worn. It's just really breathtaking for me. I didn't appreciate it quite on that level, but I did appreciate the look of it being super cinematic, really expensive looking. Having watched a lot of Gilmore Girls and seen a tour of where they shot it and all that kind of stuff like that, it seemed like that was definitely like WB money. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. th- which translates to, as we found out at different TV festivals, not that much money. And this Amazon money, this seems like movie money, you know, like unlimited money. The sets were so beautiful. And like you were saying, the camera work, you were really marveling at. If you go back and watch the Gilmore Girls revival, you'll see a little bit of this, particularly the dance scene with the- The Life and Death Brigade. Yeah, Logan and his friends. That scene is super complicated, but it's also got this camera work where a guy with a steady cam is walking backwards and he's got a very tricky route that he's following to stay out of the way of all this stuff happening. They do that all the time in uh, Mrs. Maisel, whereas in Gil- in that in the revival, they stuck a lot to the way that it was shot in the TV show with the occasional spiciness of the fancy camera moves. And I especially feel like the two times that they used that was when Luke and Lorelai uh, finally, you know, get married and they go mm-hmm. down to the, the town center and they're they're doing sort of almost a montage, but the camera is really flowing around everywhere. And then, like you said, the life and death brigade scene, both of which what I would consider very fantasy like, very dreamy, alter reality kind of feeling, both of those moments. And they capture that with the camera work. And I think that there's a lot about Mrs. Maisel that when they really use that camera work a ton is when it's like she's almost like living this alter ego life, you know, of the comedian. And so you're moving around the club and things are really fluid, you know, as opposed to like in her apartment and stuff. It's a little bit Mm -hmm. more 
you know, Static. yes, the, as is life, right? A little bit more stuffy and whatnot. So let's talk about some of our main characters and then we'll get into what happens in the pilot. So we have Rachel Brosnahan, who plays the main character, who is Miriam Maisel, otherwise known as Midge, which I guess in a, in a later episode, her brother says Midget. And so then I'm like, oh, is that where Midge comes from? <laughs> it's like a little sister name is Midge. So uh. I, I guess so. I guess that's where it comes from because she is the the younger sibling so i guess that's that's why well, i don't know it's like a petite name you know oh yes it's like bunny <laughs> right she plays mrs mazel her character she's jewish for one thing that's a very defining pillar of her character but then she's also this woman that strives to be the you know, Life Magazine, Housewife of the 50s, you know? That's why I think this is an interesting time frame to choose because I think that it's, there's there's still very much the value placed on these very specific traits in women, how they look, what they wear, how they act, how they spend their day, having, you know, a boy and a girl as your children, all this stuff. There's very, very formulaic. And then there's this other movement happening in in our culture where women are getting jobs and women are going to college and women are able to express themselves in ways that they haven't before and it's sort of like that interesting like ebb and flow in all these episodes where it's like sometimes she goes really far into the progressive and then sometimes we see her going like really far back into a traditional conservative role and she kind of like flows back and forth in those worlds. As a character, I think Miriam is super interesting because she has the same traits that I loved about Lorelai in Gilmore Girls. She's smart. She's witty. She is irreverent, which is like a must for female characters for me. I need them to not always walk the line and use them to say outrageous things for me to fall in love with them. And she also has a little bit of sort of that innocence and naivete that I think that Rory's character had in a lot of the Gilmore Girls episodes where she's just learning new new parts to, to things, you know, wanting to rely on books and manuals and stuff at some points, you know, to tell her exactly how things should be. Right. If, if Rory was going to become a comedian, this is how she would do it. She would keep a journal. She would yes. take notes mid-performance. Mm -hmm. This is how she would do it. It's interesting. And when then you, the Lorelai side is like the side when she's just drunk and just gets on stage and says whatever she's thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not exactly Lorelai, but it is that same ch channeling of Amy that fed Lorelai, fed the same thing in Mrs. Maisel, but just was allowed to go further because of the nature of the the streaming medium, I think. Oh, yeah. And and I think that and she does a good service to that other side of her, which is clearly that bookish um, researched, studied. I want to do well. So I'm going to like learn um, that side. That must be Amy and probably Daniel as well, where you get a lot of that those characteristics. So I feel like if, if you are a Gilmore Girls lover, I feel like there's a lot to, to find here. Some of the things that I had a little bit of a hard time was they actually, I don't want to say recycled jokes, but leaned heavily on similar themed jokes, which was a little bit hard to take sometimes. It was fun and nostalgic at first, but then the second or third or fourth or fifth or 20th joke that I'm like, I heard this before and it's a different character who said it. I had a little bit of a hard time. Caroline is like a, a walking, like what a, if what I am for Star Wars in terms of being able to identify 
bits of dialogue or scenes or something like that. That's what she can do. But with all hundred hours of, of Gilmore Girls episodes. And so, yeah, she was picking out all Even just specific adjectives. Material. Like, I mean, so we've watched, we're going to just let you guys know, we've watched the entire Mrs. Maisel series here. So we've seen the entire thing. So when we go back, we're going to very much not spoil you as we go. But there was like one portion where uh, a character used the adjective copious. You need copious amounts of coffee. Okay. Now I know that, I mean, copious is a great adjective. Go for it. However, it's a specific adjective that specifically Lorelai says, and it's it just, it's like, you know, I don't, I, there's specific moments that happened. Um, you know, comparing, there's an episode in Gilmore Girls where Emily says that um, Lorelai is acting like Henny Goodman. Right. And that exact joke is used and, right. at another point. And it's like, no, come on. that's a, It's a Jewish comedian. Why wouldn't you reference it? It's fine. But it's like for the masses, it's not a comedian that necessarily everybody, it's not a go-to. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a Bob Hope. It's not a like, you know, oh yeah, no, I totally know who that is. So it's like when you use it, it's like, oh, and and they have characters who are very in love with coffee. Like I said, that's like, ooh, don't don't use the same exact traits for everyone. It's interesting know? that that whole part of Gilmore Girls with Richard and Emily being, you know, Yale alums, mm -hmm. being New Englanders, and then the the Life and Death Brigade being, you know, from old money families. Um, they especially in those scenes like the dance scene in the revival they they have a a little reflection i guess of what amy must have really loved about the 50s you know just that the style and the dancing and all that kind of stuff comes through and you know if you talk to amy she doesn't seem like someone that would give too much of a shit about tradition but it also she puts it into these characters like this where it seems like yeah she does appreciate tradition quite a bit She's she's fine with breaking out of it, but she understands it quite well because it, it seems to be steeped in all of these shows, you know? Yeah. And I think that some of that, too, comes from that love of that sort of studied, researched portion of her to where, you know, when was like Hollywood in its heyday? Well, it would have been at this time when you have like these grand musicals. And and if you're if, Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're a very studied writer or if you are just a person who really studies entertainment this is a time when you want to like delve into that and and i feel like going to a place like the copa and and seeing women dance in these very um planned out complicated choreography kind of dances versus what is entertainment now well we go to a dance club and people kind of shake around and stuff but like it, it's like, you know, what if you really appreciated the the planned, well-costumed dance and versus the, you know, what it is today and sort of is kind of disintegrated into. So I get it. And I feel like you can look at that across entertainment, like the songs and the complicated lyrics and the complicated um, uh, or, or complicates the wrong word, the well-planned out. Uh, way that they sang, danced, entertained versus the freestyle, everything that we embrace now. It's just, it's just very different. And so I, I can, and I think that the idea of, of 
whether Amy appreciates tradition, I think that there's parts, I mean, the fact that she wears a hat all the time and stuff, there's some parts that are like, that was a woman's thing back in the day too. They always wore hats. You know, mm. people used to wear hats. She always wears a hat. I think there's like a little bit of like a, a grab to wanting to keep some of that traditional might not be the right word, but a nostalgic feeling of a day, you know, gone by. Well, this, uh, this show's other main character is always seen wearing a hat. Susie, the comedy booking at, at the gaslight. Yes. Uh, we run into her initially with Joel, but we find out that she is kind of the gatekeeper to getting your spot at open mic night at at the gaslight which is just one of those it's a, it's a bar that you have to walk downstairs <laughs> in order to go to in right. new york Susie is played by alex borstein who is the first pick for uh the role of suki on gilmore girls and actually there was like a whole episode that was actually shot with her but she and she in future episodes plays drella the the harpist in the um independence inn and then she also plays miss celine and she wears the exact hats as miss celine even very similar hair to what miriam wears um and she also comes from this time where she like refers to everybody as these old glamorous hollywood people like she's like oh you look like greta garbo or you look like whatever like she refers to everyone and by like an old hollywood name which there's there's another character in marvelous miss Maisel who does the same thing who refers to everyone as as actors or actresses what's kind of interesting behind the scenes here is and i don't know how it all works but i but there's this strange connective tissue between the Gilmore Girls world, the the Sherman, the Amy Sherman Palladino troupe, and Seth MacFarlane's group. Um, Alex Borstein has been the voice of Lois uh, on Family Guy for the last 15, 20 years, however long that show has been running, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, if you go and look at Daniel's credits on IMDb. You'll see that he he was a creative consultant on The Family Guy for several seasons before all this started with Gilmore Rolls, maybe even in between gigs. We just podcasted about The Orville, which is Seth's newest show, and there's a, a, a regular starting on that show that had a few episodes. He only has two kinds of credits, and in in, it's all Seth stuff or Gilmore Girls, which is a really funny mix. Yeah. But, if you guys watch the Orville, it's Dan, the new alien. Right. Dan was... Named Dan, by the way. He was a recurring character on Gilmore Girls and Cleveland Brown in the Seth McFarlane It is world. an interesting little mix. It certainly, again, it points to the type of shows that we enjoy watching, which is irreverent. We need shows. Could you imagine with Amy and Seth in the same room at the same time? Oh, wow. Holy there would, crap. The amount of F-bombs <laughs> that would be dropped would exp- implode the place, right? Probably. Yeah, crazy. You need a special license on the room, you know, like one <laughs> For, of those stickers oh that the God. county has to put up. For sure. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Mrs. Maisel's Mr. Maisel. So we have Joel Maisel, who's played by Michael. I believe he pronounced his last name Zegan. I would say Zegan. And he was actually on Boardwalk Empire. So a lot of people know him from that. I did not. But he definitely has that sort of mafia New York City kind of feel to him. Yeah, especially the way they grease his hair back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if, if he said, yeah, I'm from uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, you'd say bullshit. 
You are from New York. Quit lying. So, you know, even in the first, you know, pilot episode, we grew to hate Joel pretty darn quick. Yeah. I mean, the dude, the dude just came off like a poser, you know, just like Mm -hmm. thought super highly of himself. And then as we'll explain in our episode one wrap up, just shat all over everything around. He he was like he was like the turkeys in South Park. They they pooped all over the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean he he is is you know the guy you pray you didn't marry, and he just ugh gross as an as an actor and stuff. I think he did a great job. I he was my least favorite person to come on screen, however, because I anything that he had to do with was just turning. Turn into crap for our main girl. So then we have Miriam's parents who are played by... Marin Hinkle. Who, if you guys don't recognize her because she did an amazing transformation job, I thought she played um, John Cryer's ex-wife Judith on Two and a Half Men, so Alan's ex-wife Judith. And man, she looks like so different to me. I did not recognize her at all. And then Tony Shalhoub is her uh, dad. And, you know, I thought that they were amazing amazing i mean tony i feel like i've only seen him on things like monk and i did not have an appreciation for him and his delivery of lines and how just i mean i thought he was amazing he was very much one of my favorite characters whenever he was on screen you knew that that he wasn't there to just uh be on screen because they needed an, an another guy on screen right then he was there because he had something usually hilarious to say even though he never made a joke uh it was all just the way he said it because he's mm-hmm. an academic he's a professor he's a professor of math so he's a very serious minded guy he needs things to be lined up the way that he likes them and you know uh dealing with a person like that can be funny for the rest of us who, who are <laughs> who can color outside the lines a little bit you know yeah, there was a lot of Richard Gilmore in there as well that I thought that, you know, the fact that he was a professor at Columbia and then we had Richard first being insurance, but then being a professor at Yale. And then, you know, we have the mother who is completely fixated on on things like, you know, the size of the baby's head, which again, Gilmore Girls fans, if you guys remember, that was like a big part about why Lorelai has no baby pictures is because Emily constantly commented on the size of her head. Lorelai says one of her first words was to say big head want dolly (laughs) and so like the fact that they are like fixating on Midge's daughter Esther's head is uh, again like I said there's a lot of parallels so all I want to think is that it must be just super common not only of the time but but certainly um Amy's upbringing or whatnot to want to fixate on, you know, it's just easier to be pretty was was what her mom says. And it's like, yeah, I could see that. There were some really specific lines that she was like, you know, your arms, your your upper arms only have a short period left. You need to get a bolero jacket. But I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, like the way that she's just like constantly criticizing and judging and evaluating but in like this really prim and proper way. Like she's not she's not making fun of Midge, but like, you know, when Midge comes in and she's like, what are you wearing? It's so unflattering. Or it's not thinning or something like mm-hmm. that. It's just like, oh my God, just nonstop, nonstop. It's just a robe, right? It's like her nightgown. It's just her nightgown. 
but God dang, you know, it's yeah. crazy. So then with those being the main characters, let's get into the pilot and what actually is the setup for our family here. Well, we get this really cool intro. Uh, I've seen it referred to as a Goodfellas style intro. You've never seen Goodfellas to my recollection. I Tell me more. Um, it is a, a very long, uncompromising montage set to narration. You could see that in the in the in the wedding here. This is this is meant to start with their wedding, and Midge is is is, ex, is explaining how her life has just turned out utterly perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she <laughs> in in what is like must be super Amy. She she mentions about the shrimp at, in being in oh in the toast God. or whatever in the in the egg rolls in the egg rolls and being you know devout jewish people that doesn't work out for like half the room yeah they like panic which uh, yes i agree that was very amy we were at the gilmore girls reunion and there were things that amy said that you could see people on stage wince you could see people in the audience like oh like you know your shoulders go up like ooh. and hey you know i i i love a good f-bomb like anywhere but just the times and the way she was using it at, at times you were like oh my god you're like offending everyone in the room you know Definitely was. and that was very you know midge in that moment and and being like tickled with herself that she did it like i mean she just kind of did that little girl like sweet smile like oh look what i did you know yes so, so then, we get the setup that Midge went to Bryn Mawr, that she had had this really picturesque kind of upbringing, that she was able to go to a high-end university, and that she knew what her job was, was to find a husband. And they get married right out of school. The show picks up four years later. They've got a couple of uh, kids. So it's like 1958 now. If you ever watched the first season of Everybody Loves Raymond, then you saw the original opening to the show in which he explained that, yes, he has kids, but this show isn't about the kids. You'll hardly ever see them. Remember that? I do, now that you said it. And that's how the kids are in this. Yes, there are kids, but you hardly ever see them. Very true. Especially the baby. Baby you see for like one second every once in a while. Only to make a joke. The kids are only around to make a joke. Right. The Winston Churchill sized baby head. Oh yes. my God. <laughs> it turns out that Joel has these aspirations to become a comedian. And it's basically been placed on Miriam's shoulders to always finagle him, you know, a better spot. And so watching her do her uh, brisket cooking and everything and bring that Pyrex to the to the gaslight was like, I, I can't imagine bringing a Pyrex like to a club like that all seems like so crazy. But then like it's so prim and proper and like appropriate on its own weird way. Caroline, you you send me to work with pastries and things. This is the right. same thing. I'm so sure. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Ziploc bags of like Cheez-Its count. <laughs> no, you send me with like cookie trays, don't you? Oh, when you're, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I guess when we're trying to, we're trying to ingratiate ourselves, I suppose I do send you with cookie trays. Right. But the thing that bugs you right off the bat with, with uh, Joel here is that he's, he's leaning super heavy on her for this passion project of his. And then you find out that he's stealing the whole act from Bob Newhart. Yeah. That Um, was so weird. 
that is I mean, that a thing? I mean, is that a thing? Do people? No, no, it, it's, it's not. It, no, it's a terrific way to not have a career in whatever it is that you're doing. Well, how do like so new comedians? They they must they must do something where there must be like a like a canon of jokes where you just kind of go up there and kind of use you know because you don't have a whole set written surely when you just get started right i mean i'm just throwing that out there i'm just guessing you got to start somewhere but you don't start with someone else's material the thing is like we've heard lots of comedians over our relationship mm-hmm. and we've remember we were going to commit comic we were going to comedy clubs with some regularity several years ago and it seemed like if the opening comic was a woman she was usually not that awesome and a lot of her humor relied on stories of what she did when she was drunk. And that seemed to be like formulaic for these opening act women comedians. Not that men didn't talk about being drunk either. They did too. Okay. But for some reason that just stood out as like this pattern for just people that just didn't have great material. So they relied on these stories of being drunk. So I feel like I have to correct you because I don't think it was a woman thing at all. I think it was like the all of the opening comics who had really short bits. You're right that it was like they only talked about one of two things. The men, you're right, talked more about getting stoned. They would constantly talk about Mm. getting high and then whatever goofy thing happened. And you're right, the women didn't go for that, but they would say that they were they had, had a lot of wine or something had happened, and then this led to their escapade. So I would say that, yeah, both of them seemed to need to express to all of us that they were in an altered state. They weren't themselves. And this is why some kooky-ass whatever thing happened. But not this. This is just Joel stealing an act, and Midge finds out, and she kind of... It's like she doesn't engage her brain on the on the issue. You know, it's like she she just accepts his bullshit about this is how this is what people do. This is how they start. This is just the the done thing. I mean, you went to college, Midge. Well, but I mean, here's the thing. I okay, so but I'm not saying anything negative about old Midge here and what she should or shouldn't have known. I feel like that it's really really difficult and going to be difficult throughout this whole watching of the entire series to disengage ourselves from modern society like how easy we have access to information via the internet and and even the amount of tv that we've all seen or entertainment in general that we kind of have the idea that we know how things work in all different industries that we have zero experience with or how people do things in their homes or something like we have this really vast amount of information compared to Back in the 50s where you would, yes, she went to to university, but she still was doing exactly what everybody else was doing. And, you know, I, I feel like the idea that women still couldn't have credit cards and still couldn't do anything without their their parents, you know, stepping in and their dad signing paperwork and stuff like that for so long that like the idea that you think that they would somehow be more aware of how the world works i think is like no i mean there it was really they were really isolated well this concept of stealing the material is what kind of drives the uh the whole series inciting incident okay because mm-hmm. she says you know why don't you try some of your own material and he does and it he can't he, he didn't come up with timing or voices 
or any kind of shit that you would put it into a performance. He just started talking and it didn't work. Not even a little. He was so bad, like cringeworthy bad. Even when he tried to reuse her joke about the Ted the moth and his calling card was the dime sized holes that he leaves was like, I mean, she was, it was legitimately funny when she said it in the cab. Like I kind of was like <laughs> when she said it, <laughs> but then when he says it on the stage, it was like, Oh my God. And you know, when he's like yelling at her that like, you told me to use that. And she's like, but I thought you were going to put it in some sort of joke form. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I thought you were going to actually like deliver it, you know, like you can't just like drop it on the stage. You have to I have to kind of build up to it, you know? So he's so upset that he decides to pack his shit. So this Which, is one of those um, moments where it turns out that the supervillain has already put his devious plan into motion. And there's nothing you can do at this point because the damage is done. It's over. You missed it. Sorry. I really had kind of a rough go with this entire portion because here he is, you know, saying, well, you won't ever respect me again because of all this. And so I can't stay in a house basically where I'm not respected. And you might be able to say, okay, uh, you know, he's having a really bad night. He's really, really embarrassed. This is that whole pride thing. Okay. All right. We can get through this. But when he just like throws out OPS, I've been having an affair for months. This is what threw Joel into the realm of the lost cause slash irredeemable character for me. Um, you know, I, I do not subscribe to the bros before hoes axiom on this one, I'm afraid. The guy's just too shitty. He reminds me of Pete from Mad Men, how he would just wantonly cheat on his wife, who was... Uh, kind of like a, a lighter version of Mrs. Maisel. You know what I mean? Yeah, Not, she was. Um, so, and I thought that was shitty of him to do to her. And I think it's shitty for him to do it to, to Mrs. Maisel. So. What sucks about it, I can tell you from a woman point of view, is that I feel like, so here he was cheating this whole time. And now he's going to take this situation and turn it on like somehow I've done something wrong. You know, he's he's been doing this the whole time. And then because I'm not going to respect him, now he has to leave. I mean, it's like, what? I mean, see how been, it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I mean, I and her response. I mean, again, maybe this was because it was the 50s because she was so in shock. I don't know. But I feel like there would have been a whole lot more yelling in the Daily House if you turned around and said, NPS, I've been sleeping with my secretary for the last couple months. You would not get out of there unscathed after that, you know? Maybe the prim and proper nature of the time kept her, you know, in check. But I mean, OMG, I would, mm, don't, don't you ever try it. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'll never tell. Now you've had that warning. Now you know. Don't pack my suitcase and try to tell me you've been having sex with your secretary. Uh, yeah, no, I couldn't deal. Then, and he has like the gall to be like, and you'll tell your parents, right? She was like laughing so hard. She's like, that might have been the funniest thing you've ever said. Because it's like, you're such a, you're such an ass, you know? Such an ass. So he decides to leave for 
greener pastures with Penny Pan, his secretary. It's such a like ca- cartoon character name, right? Yes. It just seems like an Amy sense of humor kind of like, I know, let's put him with this bitch named Penny. Penny Pan. Penny Pan. That's, that's a great name <laughs> for someone who you'd hate. That's not the end of the episode, friends and neighbors. That's just like getting going toward what, what really matters, which is this sends Midge out back to the gaslight in her nighty because she's had uh, a little bit of wine and she winds up on stage. Well, and to be clear, this was the Yom Kippur wine because she had the table set for 30 guests coming the next morning, including the rabbi to break fast and like, OMG, like he's going to leave. He's going to leave the night before. Like, can you imagine that? Why does this always happen? Why do spouses always get into arguments like the night before the big party or whatever, you know, or hours before? Why does it always happen? Pressure. Everyone's strained, right? Yeah. For sure. And it just seems like, oh, my God. And so, I mean, she just guzzles that wine and takes off. And wow, her performance on stage, amazing. Yes. But unfortunately... There are decency laws governing the day, and she breaks a few of them. Which, okay, so for younger people who don't know that much about decency laws, can you enlighten people? Well, apparently, using the bad language that people normally use uh, to talk amongst themselves, but doing it on stage, like F-bombs and stuff like that, that's considered bad, and, and I guess... What what did she say exactly? What kind of stuff was she saying that actually got her arrested? Well, it was definitely the swearing. And then the um, they said that she like was basically acting lewd, like simulating sex acts kind of stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. And then and then finally she does rip her shirt down, and uh, you get to you get to see it all, which is highly unexpected on on uh, an Amy Sherman Palladino show. But there we are. So that finally was like public indecency. And and which is actually still the way the law is now. Girls can't just take their tops off. So the cops come in and take her away. There's like an Easter egg in this beginning section, which is you get to see Lenny Bruce take the stage. Lenny Bruce was a real comic back in the day. It, I think it's super cool how they weave his character in and out of Midge's life throughout the first season. He just touches on it here in the first episode, and this isn't the last time you're going to see Lenny Bruce. So because she did so well on stage, Susie decides that she is ready to launch herself as a personal manager, and she is trying so hard to represent Midge, which, I, you know, that part's kind of funny, I guess, in its own little way. You know, obviously Susie's been around, but you get like this whole other glimpse into the 50s with Susie. You know, she lives in this like literal like postage stamp of all right and like doesn't have a phone and just like she lives like even in like a whole other time and you know when you get a good look like a newsie alex borstein and she is not a regular sized person she's really tiny and so the place where she lives everything seems proportional for her did you notice that oh yeah i don't know that a standard sized person would actually be able to live in her place. I mean, the counters were low. The tables were low. Did you notice this? I guess that's true. I didn't, but you're right. So Midge gets hauled off to jail. Susie gets her out and starts convincing her, like you were saying, about becoming her her one and only client in her freshly minted 
comedy act management company. Mid, she thinks it was just sort of a one-off thing, right? That, that oh, absolutely. She is not this downtown girl, you know? No. But it it she can't get it out of her, her mind either. I think she never really says, I would like to do this thing that that asshole Joel thought that he could do and just kill it. She never says that. But I still get that. Do you? Hmm. Uh, I feel like that might be like putting too much on Joel as being the reason for her um, interest. I think it's something that's just like innately a part of her. You know, she's just she's good at this. She's good at making people laugh. And that's what makes her feel good and and fulfilled. And so I think that, you know, if he was like a, you know, a jockey, would she want to become a jockey? No, I don't. I don't think it was about fulfilling his dream from on her, from her point of view. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it was that, you know, because they were pursuing his stuff, she knew enough about it to know that it was somewhere to go and get this off her chest. But I don't think that I don't think it's that she was trying to like show how much better she was than him. I think it was just this is what makes her feel happy. It's her personality, honestly, you know, and I don't even know where Joel gets off thinking he was funny at all. You know, I don't He had no business there, you know, and he honestly, had the beatnik sweater. Well, even when it comes up, when, when she says, you know, when he's when he's acting like this was like the the become a professional comedian, she was like, what? I just thought this was something we do for fun. That's what I mean. Like, where does he get off thinking like this was anything more than just something to do on a Friday night, you know? So she noodles about it, eventually winds up bailing Lenny Bruce out of jail one morning, which kind of creates this little favor based economy with the two of them. Yeah. And I like them together. Like I like their back and forth. Their dynamic is fresh and interesting and so much more than Joel. Not that I want them to get together because old Lenny's married and and I don't I don't want that for Midge. That life does not look like it wouldn't be fun to be the girl he's supposed to come home to, but it would be fun to be the girl that hangs out with him. If you go back and watch, you can go on YouTube and look up Lenny Bruce. Now I'm not advocating his material in terms of either being funny in today's politically correct climate or the way that we think about things now. Um, I just think that you might want to go and listen to how he performed, watch how he performed, and you'll see that the actor that they got to do Lenny Bruce, I mean, he nailed it in a lot of ways. He was a little overdone with some of the physicality of it, but then... I think that was like his signature thing with the crossing the arms and stuff like that. Is that well, what you mean? Well, or the hunching, the hunching of the of the shoulders. No, I think and that, that that was like his that was like his thing, but not like we saw. So the look that we watched, he was on like mainstream television, the Steve Allen show. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, I think he was being a little bit more mainstream. But I think that like the way that he talked and the way that he behaved on these like smaller stages was just like this, this sort of like kind of hunched over. Like, he's got a very peculiar accent. It's not a straight up New yeah. York accent. He's got something very uniquely him. It's a kind of a stage affectation, I think. And the actor really nails it in a lot of ways. It's funny that it's like in a weird way, like um, it reminds me of the dude from the Twilight Zone. Like the way that he kind of Rod Serling, yeah, the way that the like shortened, clipped kind of like ways that he would say things, and not it's not the same accent or anything like that, but it's like this like it's the way that Lenny Bruce would be like, you know, like you could 
if you thought of him saying the Twilight Zone, like, you know, imagine this, you are here and blah, blah, blah. Like that kind of like the way that he would deliver his lines had a lot of the same kind of cadence to it. That's a good word. Yeah. It was really familiar. And and I hadn't really. I knew same the, era. I knew the name Lenny Bruce, but I didn't know. I didn't really know his personality traits, his characteristics. Yeah, me neither. So this, it was, I thought it was great. And I, I really loved that she really wanted him to say like, do you love this? Is this something to, to really pursue? And he was like, mm. you know, and he did that sort of like, I'm embarrassed to say it, but, you know, kind of <laughs> shrug, like maybe I do, you know, it was kind yeah. of, kind of adorable. So there was, there were some little moments in, in the pilot that I have to make sure that we hit. The whole um, subplot of of everything that Miriam has to do to be a woman in this world, like, what did you think of the whole washing her face, you know, raising the blind a little bit so she could get up before her man to to put her face all back together again in her hair? Um, I'm sh- I'm sure this is something that her mom told her needed to be done, and and she saw some logic in it, but um. I mean, I don't think Joel ever really noticed, you know what I mean? And I think if he, I don't know. I mean, I think it was a lot What do you mean by never really noticed? That she woke up perfect. I don't think that Joel ever saw her without makeup on. Like, I don't think he ever saw her without lipstick on, without fake eyelashes, ever. Not ever. Yeah, that's probably accurate. Can you imagine that? No. No, I've I've, I've seen the entire getting ready routine. (laughs) before i'm I'm aware of all the tricks that go into (laughs) yeah i felt bad for her that she felt she needed to do all that in order to fit this ideal because i think that a lot of that effort went went to nothing do you know that like a lot of women still do stuff like that a lot of women like get up before their husband brush their teeth or they do crap like that do you well that sounds like a real common courtesy but the the rest of it though the uh Sleeping with tape on your face and, and, um, well, you can't have wrinkles, Paul. And then taking the tape off and getting up and then pretending like you're just getting up like, like, like sleeping beauty, just perfectly ready to go in the morning. That, uh, no, that's, I mean, come on. <laughs> that's just, did you have any idea how hard everyone worked to keep it a secret from you guys? It seems like the sort of thing Betty Draper would have done. A hundred percent. Believably. Yes. And that that show is Mad Men is created in a way like this has an edge of the fantastic a little bit, you know, just a tiny sliver of not unbelievability. It's more like just, I don't know, pizzazz and wow that like Mad Men was more, I don't know, grittier feeling like they wanted For sure. wanted you to feel. And so the fact that that the both that the same sentiment could be true in both shows means you must be right <laughs> that 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 women actually were like that they were it's crazy like it's crazy for me to think of like how much energy must have been spent like doing all that kind of stuff how little sleep would you have to get if you were having to try to sleep in a very specific don't move around kind of way because you had curlers in your hair and you know all this cream on your face like oh my gosh i can't it's such a different time you know I don't know if it's for the for the for the better that we've gone as far as we have in terms of like, you know, whatever people walk around without ever doing themselves up. Like, you know, we talk about like getting on the airplane or something. People used to dress all nicely and now people are like 
barely wearing things that are not just their pajamas, you know, to get on the planes and everything. It's like there is something a little bit lost. But man, some of this stuff, the act that you have to put on specifically as a woman, the act of like exactly, you know, your waist has to look just so your face has to look just so exhausting people. Well, there's that scene where she's measuring all of her uh, pertinent uh, measurements, calves, thighs, waist, bust, all that kind of stuff. And it's been the same since she was a teenager, I think is what she said. For the last 10 years. Yeah. So since she had been 16. Crazy, right? Yes. So crazy. So crazy. So many awesome little pull back the curtain kind of moments in this pilot that really showed you how a different life was. And I look forward to seeing that a lot more. I loved watching the fashion. What did you think about the music? The music was just fantastic. I loved the music. I mean, I loved the when they did the the 50s era part of Mad Men. The music was seemed close to that, but I liked how for the closing credits they used modern music. Yeah. It's sort um, of like it's like it ushered you back into the now. It's like a transition period back to your regular life. They didn't pick Iggy Azalea. They picked even modern pieces that sounded like they could have been popular at any time in the last 40 years. Nice. You and know I know I mean? that that's supposed to be like Daniel Palladino's whole shtick is like that he's like the music man. And there's tons of music throughout this that really have you your toe tap in or it just it like submerses you into the whole thing. Love it. Well, it creates like a tempo for, for the yeah. entire episode that is relatively fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although speaking of that, the, the characters in this one actually spoke at a little bit normal clip compared to our Amy Sherman Palladino dialogue of the Gilmore Girls. I felt like they actually slowed down a little bit. They were still quicker than maybe normal language, but, you know, it's TV. And so there's some part of that that you're like, come on, come on, come on, come on, you know. But like, I didn't think that they made everyone speak that way. And there was so much more like, I don't know, like normalcy to it, you know? What she could do in Gilmore Girls with pop culture references she really couldn't do in this show i mean if she tried to none of us would know what she's talking about there was some but it was it was less yeah you know there's definitely some and it and it felt a little bit more like i said like natural like normal there was a normal you know it wasn't like dropping it every two sentences you know yeah but nothing like wrapped in plastic there's nothing <laughs> like that i loved wrapped in plastic so well thanks you guys so much for listening we look forward to doing the next episode of the marvelous mrs Maisel for you guys if you guys have any feedback on this or other episodes that we've done, please hit us up on Twitter at Daily Review and on our Facebook page, Daily Review. And check out our written reviews on SoManyShows.com. Thanks a lot. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, DailyReview.com. That's D-A-L-E-Y Review.com. Facebook or Twitter or wherever you find us. Please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.